Well, thank you, Jason and Ashley, for your reading of the scripture for us this morning. I'd like to invite all of you to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be reading a famous miracle that's in all four of the gospel accounts, the feeding of the 5,000 as it's generally known, although we know that there's so many more people there than just 5,000. Typically, they would only count the men in the crowd. And so with every uh, man, woman, and child, the crowd is is probably much bigger than just 5,000 people. So if you take your Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. I'm going to be reading it from the NIV this morning. Listen to this event in Christ's ministry. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Then Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. The written word of the Lord for us today. These last few weeks, we've heard from both Pastor Stacy and myself the parables of what Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God to be like. Fertile soil, uh, seeds scattered, weeds being pulled up, a, a great pearl of great price being found, a, a buried treasure that someone sells all they have for the land. All of these parables painting this great big picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. And, and in this event in Christ's life, I really want us to start by really understanding how Jesus is showing, no longer just giving us a parable, but showing what the kingdom of God is like in his own life and ministry. I, I remember the parable that Pastor Stacy pointed out where the, the, the small little mustard seed that's planted and then its limbs, it grows to be a tree that is greater enough for birds to come and build their nests in the tree. And, and that the harvest we're hoping for from the seeds that are planted of the kingdom is one that is greater than we could really ever imagine or expect. Well, here we see that Jesus starts off with very little. 
And, and I'm not even talking about the bread and the fish. If we start off with the beginning of this passage in verse 13, it says when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus heard about his cousin, the John the Baptist, being beheaded by the whims of Herod's new wife, um, a, a, a dictator over all of all of Israel, put there by the as a puppet king from Rome. This this person beheaded John the Baptist at the whim of his now new wife, who happened to be his brother's former wife. Talk about scandal, conspiracy, things that were taking place in the first century world that, that Jesus and Israel could, could not try to fix. They just, they didn't have the power to stop that sort of corruption. So Jesus is not only lamenting the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, but how John the Baptist died and his compassion for the people that were under this oppressive system of government, this, this system that led to oppression of the marginalized and the poor. So Jesus is lamenting so many things and he doesn't have the energy to minister right then. So he gets into a boat to find a solitary place to rest to draw near to God and to lament and grieve this reality that he's seeing unfold in the world. And so distancing himself, he gets into this boat and goes to a private location. And yet when he lands there, the people heard about where he was going. And so this large, enormous crowd met Jesus there. And the scriptures tell us, Matthew does, that he sees the crowd and has compassion on them. Now, based on the rest of the text, we can assume that this is pretty early on in the day, maybe, maybe before noon on that day. And so he, has, he is moved with compassion. That's the first thing we hear about this miracle, that Jesus is moved with compassion to heal the sick among them. And so he spends all day with the sick. He heals them. He, uh, I can imagine that he goes around and the sick are brought to him. Um, and he heals maladies of all different kinds. And he spends all day doing this. We don't even hear the disciples come into the passage until the evening is there. And so the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, it's getting late. Send these people home. We're sure they're hungry and they're starving. Send them home so that they can get something to eat. So even before this great miracle, Jesus has spent all day tending to the very physical needs of the sick. And then he moves into meeting another very physical need, feeding their earthly bodies, feeding them with food. So I, wa I want you to imagine with me, if you will, as Jesus is healing these people, I'm sure that it's not just happening without any conversation. Jesus is one, he's not only a, a, a savior, but he's a friend maker. <laughs> he makes friends wherever he goes. And as he's healing the sick, he's talking with their families. He's talking with God on their behalf and, and he's building relationships. So as you might imagine, 
Over 5,000 people as he's healing the sick. I'm sure he's making new friends. He's making new relationships. He's talking about God to the people and talking about the people to God. And it's this beautiful display where conversations are happening and relationships are built. I'm sure he's using it as a teaching moment as well, that as he's healing the sick, he's also a teacher. And so he's teaching and he's maybe repeating the scriptures to them. He had compassion on them. And so he's doing that work of healing along with the work of teaching and compassion and tending to their needs. And by the time evening comes, he has built relationships with so many of the people in the crowd, not just as a healer, but as a teacher and maybe even a Messiah. Maybe even some of them have come to see him, even in that moment, as the savior of the world. And I think that's the context that the disciples come into and say, Jesus, it's already getting late. Send them away. And he's taught, now they're talking about a crowd where he's built friends and relationships and maybe even new followers. <laughs> The disciples are now saying, send them away so that they can go and get something to eat. It's not a bad request. The disciples had their needs in mind as well. Uh, but the, the context of their relationship, of Christ's relationship with the crowd, has fundamentally changed from just a, a person that has rumors about him as a great healer to an actual healer among them. Someone who speaks with great authority to someone who has spoken great authority over them. And so this relationship between the crowd and Jesus has fundamentally changed. And Jesus still has compassion over them. And so what does Jesus do? He, he responds to the disciples, no, we don't need to send them away. How about you feed them? And with what little Jesus started with, didn't have the energy to minister, didn't have the capacity or the strength maybe to, to give over into ministry, just like a mustard seed, just like a small seed that is scattered on the ground. Jesus himself became fertile soil for the kingdom to grow and flourish and gave what little he had to God. And God multiplied that with miracles of healing the sick, of, of, of restoring hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind in the crowd of that day. And so then Jesus turns and asks really the disciples to do likewise. And they say, well, we only have this small thing. We only have the, the, this, a few loaves of bread and, and two fish. And so Jesus is saying, hey, have you heard this parable of the mustard seed that I just told you? Where, where what you may see is small, God can take and multiply if we are just fertile soil for the kingdom, that we are just trusting and believing that God's going to do a mighty work. And so he asks the crowd to sit down and the disciples bring him the, the few loaves and the two fish. And he breaks the loaves and he, he blesses them and he gives it over to, to the crowd and they start eating what they have. And in this moment, it is, it is significant because we see all throughout Christ's ministry that um, 
that God desires to participate with humanity. Even in all the parables, we see the master and, and the follower or the teacher and the student, that these parables are cooperative. And even in this miracle, Jesus is cooperating or partnering with the disciples, calling them to the work of the kingdom. And he's also calling the crowd to participate with this ongoing work of God. It's not this God desiring to do this work all by God's self. No, the incredible thing of scripture is that from the beginning of time, God has desired humanity to participate with the ongoing work of God in the world. And this continues on in the ministry of Jesus. The salvation from God, the gospel of Christ, is one that invites us to participate with the founding of the kingdom and the ongoing work of the kingdom in the world. So we have to imagine here that as Jesus is inviting the disciples into this ongoing work, He's also inviting the crowd to participate in this miraculous work of what is so small in the world's eyes, being made great, to, to be made glorifying of God even before their very eyes. A, a, a really notable pastor mentioned the other day that um, perhaps we also need to imagine what's going on here, that as Christ is giving of the crowd, of his small uh, energy, of his small strength, that great, incredible miracles happen. And as the disciples are giving their small amount of food, is it so far-fetched to imagine that, that there wasn't any other food among the crowd of people? With all the men, women, and children is it so far-fetched to imagine that, that there might be also other food in the crowd, that they may have also brought provisions, it may have been small for their own little family units, but they too maybe brought food with them? Because the text, especially here in Matthew's text, the text doesn't tell us that God multiplied the bread and the fish. We read that in from other parts of, of Scripture and other accounts of this in the Gospels. But here in Matthew, we're not really told how the bread and fish are multiplied. We just know that it's there enough to feed everyone and have leftovers. So is it so far-fetched then to imagine that others brought what they saw as small as well? And that as Jesus was giving all that he had, even though it was so small, part of the miracle of God multiplying the bread and the fish was the crowd and the disciples also seeing that act of compassion of what was small and giving what was small that they had to give as well. So much so that every one small thing together brought about 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, the text doesn't say that, but the text doesn't not not say that as well. You get what I'm saying? We have to read in between the lines of the text to kind of imagine that that took place. But the text doesn't tell us that that isn't what happened either. But I think at the end of the day that that idea is compelling, 
Because Jesus is always asking for people to participate with the ongoing work of the gospel. And so if the crowd who had been healed all day by the work of the Messiah, the one who is grieving and lamenting the death of John the Baptist and all the ways the world had oppressed these poor people, he took what little energy he had left over and God multiplied it in their midst through the miracle of healing and and, and following in that crowd, but that Jesus also did the same and the disciples did the same with their little bit of bread and fish and God multiplied them in the midst of the crowd and perhaps the crowd multiplied it as well by their participation with that work of God in their midst. Matthew ends our, our passage today that said, everyone had more than enough to eat. You see, God's kingdom is a place where the hungry hunger no more. God's kingdom is not a kingdom like Herod's or any sort of government of the world where the poor and the marginalized continue to go without. You see, Jesus transforms their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. And oftentimes in the church, we can have a really bad division with that, where we're just here for the spiritual needs and we don't make decisions or vote for policies or, or get involved in our communities to make change happen for the sake of those who don't have adequate health care, who don't have adequate physical care in their lives, who don't have adequate food or, or medical care in, in, their, in their environments, that we as the church almost get so preoccupied on the spiritual needs that we don't also balance that with taking care of the physical needs. And in this miracle, we're not allowed to do that. Jesus cares both. It's not an either or in this miracle. It's a both and. That he cares for the physical needs, heals their, 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 their illness of all kinds, but also meets their needs of their stomachs as well, their hunger and their thirst, and also impacts their lives spiritually for an eternal uh, measure as well. So we can't make that separation. We as the church need to embody that message of Christ where we are caring for the educational, physical, mental, and spiritual well-being of the people around us. And that even involves lamenting over the ways like Herod that people are still suffering under their sort of whims and, and, and fanatical ideas about how money should be used and things like that. And it gets messy and divisions are made, but, but Jesus doesn't allow us to to sit still in our comfort, but calls us to get uncomfortable, learn how to talk about religion and politics in a holy way, not to ignore it or to get angry or upset over it, but learn how to talk about these things in a theologically biblical sound way so that we can meet the physical, mental, and spiritual needs of the people around us because we have compassion on them but it's not just to save their immortal soul. Our compassion is also to meet their needs here and now so that they know the name of Jesus cares for their whole entire being as human persons, not just part of who they are. 
And so we as the church need to do the hard work of the disciples to say, hey, this is what little we may feel like we have right now. But how can we come about in humility and wisdom and say, man, we need to learn how to talk about these things better. Man, we need to understand our participation with, with the race here in America. Man, we need to learn how to operate with healthcare better. Man, we need to be humble when it comes to educational needs. Man, there's so many things that we need to improve on. How can we help to be a, a, a better representation of Christ in these things? And I think we'll be surprised by what little we have and what God does to just exponentially grow the harvest of those things in the world around us. Well, I, I, I started off today's uh, service by asking you two questions, and I want to end with those two questions here today. How have you been changed by Jesus? And then how have you been transformed by Jesus. Uh, we're, Rebecca and I are, are chicken farmers. There's no way, way else to uh, deny that. We, we have five chickens, and if you ever want to know their names, they're super precious and important to us. Uh, one is named Mildred, of course, after the great theologian Mildred Banks Winecoop. She's a Nazarene Wesleyan holiness theologian. Incredible. So I got to name her, and, and we named the rest some, some other names. But they're, they're precious to us. But as as I saw this life cycle played out in front of us, where we got these baby little chicks, and I know that chicks come from eggs, and they grow into a full chicken, I started pondering the, the reality of metamorphosis. Because that word metanoia is the word we use for repentance. And so, of course, as a pastor, I'm always thinking about repentance and sanctification and the gospel. And and, and I realized that from the time a chicken hatches to the time it's a full-grown chicken, that's not really metamorphosis. It's change, but it's almost impartial metamorphosis, right? Because the chicken comes from the egg, this tiny little chick, but the change that happens doesn't happen from a chick to something completely different. It actually just grows into a bigger form of itself, right? Well, and I know the common, the, common, uh, the common explanation of metamorphosis is like a cocoon from a caterpillar to a butterfly. That is a dramatic form of metamorphosis. That is full metamorphosis from something different to something completely different on the other side. A caterpillar is not the same as a butterfly. It is completely transformed. We see that with seeds as well. I grew zucchini plants from a little tiny seed. And we have a, a, a cherry tree in our, in our yard. And I know that it started off with this very little seed. And now it's producing fruit. And it's huge. It's got branches and leaves. That is a dramatic form of metamorphosis. That it comes from this little tiny beginning to something dramatically different than you could ever imagine. Looking at that little seed, how a tree or, or, a, or a tomato plant or a zucchini plant or grapevines, how it could all start from this tiny little seed. And I think of the disciples that day. I think of the crowd that Jesus encountered that day. And I know that some people were changed. They were healed. 
they heard great teachings from Jesus. The disciples maybe were in awe of the miracle that took place that day and they were changed, especially with their physical healing. Maybe they could see, maybe they could hear. But change doesn't necessarily bring about more change. They came desiring change in their own lives, but as you and I know, many people may ask for change, but they don't want to change themselves. And so maybe the crowd came and the disciples came and they, they even understood that Jesus was sad over John the Baptist dying by this oppressive government. And maybe they were just inspired and in awe of this miracle that we still tell today is one of the most powerful and popular miracles in Christ's ministry. But were they transformed? Did they encounter the presence of Christ and were they so transformed that they went and lived a different way? That looked so unlike the way that they lived before. Did they not just go away with full stomachs? Did they not just go away inspired by a miracle? Were they so fundamentally impacted by Christ that they just weren't the same anymore? That what they saw was small, that God brought about a tremendous work in their lives. That they gave that over to God for the rest of their lives. And God used it to transform their communities, their families, their culture, and inevitably the powers that be in the world around them. You see, this is why I talk so often about being a part of the kingdom of God. Because so many people in power and positions of authority around us, they ask for that transformation. The change they want wants to be planted in you, but they want you to be transformed by that change that they want to make the world look like the kingdom they want in the world. But our king... The one who feeds crowds of hungry people. The one who looks at, at, at sick and the poor and the marginalized and is moved with compassion. That's the king that we are called to be a part of his kingdom. And I believe so deeply that I want to transform the world to look like the kingdom of God. That seems so small and not powerful and not mighty in the eyes of the world, but we give what little humility we have, what little thoughts we have. God uses it to fundamentally change this world for the kingdom. You know, there's two main divisions of talk of power in our American culture 
Usually it's defined by conservative, liberal, or Democrat, Republican. And both have significant ideologies and ideas of way to change the world. But the transformation that Christ has come to bring through the kingdom of God is too great. But it's seen as too small of a seeds of change by either of those political ideologies. And the kingdom of God is dramatically political, but it's, it's not partisan. It's not in the ways that those two parties believe it to be. So it can't fit in their party system. It's too great. It's too truthful. It's too transforming to be contained and coerced in the ways they want to change the world. So as soon as anyone tells you that one party is more Christian than the other, that is a scandalous lie. Both parties have blood on their hands. And both parties see the gospel at the end of the day as not capable of engaging and transforming change in the way they want to transform the world. Church, we are called to be the church. We're called to be so transformed by Jesus. The world, the broken, the hungry, the thirsty, the uneducated, the, the dirty, the marginalized, the imprisoned, those of the world oppressed and marginalized simply because of the color of their skin or that they're from other countries, the, the, the ways in which that we need to care for the unborn, the ways in which we need to care for the health and welfare of those who, who, who can't afford to feed their hungry babies. All of these things matter in the transformation of the kingdom. Taking care of people's physical needs is spiritual work. Taking care of their spiritual needs is physical work. And our, our Savior cares deeply for the whole person of human beings. And I desperately, as this conversation of world power continues into November and beyond in our own culture, I want us to think deeply that we don't want to just be changed by Jesus in some superficial way that we may forget. Some people who are healed by Jesus may forget as their life goes on, like, oh my goodness, you know, I had a broken arm or I had leprosy and Jesus healed me. Oh my gosh, that was a great event. No, I want a transformed people who are so deeply invested and committed to the kingdom of God that they are transformed by the Holy Spirit and sent out into the world to bring that transformation in the world around us. That we are not preoccupied with just some sort of inner spiritual work, but the full fundamentally transforming work of the kingdom. I pray that we are moved by compassion. The same compassion that we see Jesus moved by first in this in this passage, that even though we are lamenting so many great things, even though we are grieved by the way people suffer and are overlooked, that we are moved by compassion. 
we are marked by humility, when we are discerning, we are bringers of peace, and the people know the good news of the kingdom of God that came to bring liberation to the oppressed and marginalized and salvation and eternal life for all of humanity. Jesus Christ, you served this crowd with great compassion and humility. I pray, Lord God, that as we read your ministry and we hear your parables and how you didn't just give great sermons, but you lived greatly into the meaning and the depth of those sermons in your life, Lord God. I pray all who hear this message this week, Lord God, would seek for that transformational work through the Holy Spirit, that we are not just changed in some incredible way that we may forget about later on, that we don't just grow into bigger versions of ourselves, of who we are now, but that we allow the Holy Spirit to do transformative work in our lives, that we are unrecognizable of our former selves, Lord God, that we are not marked by the ways in which this power want, this, this world wants to mark us, that we are not pursuing power the way the world pursues power, that we are not pursuing change the way the world wants to pursue change, but that we are transformed by the work of Christ to bring about the transformational work of Christ's kingdom in the world, that we don't talk about power, we don't exercise power, we don't engage in power the ways in which the governing authorities of the world want to exercise that, but we are transformed as the body of Christ to bring about the power of the ways in which the kingdom is known by Jesus Christ, his life death, and resurrection. If the kingdom of God looks like selling all that we have for a precious piece of property, for a hidden treasure, that we look for the ways in which the kingdom of God is hidden still in this world and that seems to be so unperceived right now. If the kingdom of God is a pearl of great value, that we continue to look for that great value in each one of us and the world around us. If the kingdom of God is like, is like fertile soil, I pray that our hearts are like fertile soil receiving the word of the kingdom of God and is transformed by that work. If the kingdom of God is the willingness to, to look at the, the soil where weeds and wheat grow together and that we don't want to callously rip these things apart and create division, but we want to see the nurturing work of the kingdom of God be done in the soil until Christ returns. May your church be transformed by what the kingdom of God looks like in Christ's life, death, and resurrection so that we can be emboldened and transformed by that kingdom and participate with the ongoing transformative work of your kingdom in this world. Take us, Lord. Transform us by your character and your righteousness. Sanctify us through and through. May your Holy Spirit lead us to new depths of transformation for the will of God.
in the world around us. These are going to be days of uncertainty where wars and rumors of wars, famine and plague. But Lord God, we have hope. We have faithful assurance in the gospel because of our one true king. You have called us to be faithful as the church, not as a government, not as a nation. Jesus established us as a church. I pray, Lord God, that we do not lose hope. We do not lose our faithful assurance in you. We do not lose our faithful pursuit of the mission of the kingdom in the world around us. We pray these things in the name of God, of Christ the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.